So as a community, we're in the rhythm of Lent right now, which is a season that communities of Jesus followers all around the world pay attention to that helps us prepare and sort of move our way toward the cross of Jesus on Good Friday and the resurrection of Jesus on Easter. And uh, part of our practice as a community during Lent is to offer the table to one another every week. And so what I'm going to do in a minute is just uh, turn to the scriptures for a moment and offer some thoughts on the way to the table. Uh, but the table is really the centerpiece of our practice today. And so a word about that. If you're new here and you're wondering about the table or how we practice that, first of all, you may be wondering, like, if you're uh, supposed to be at the table. And just so you know, for our community, the answer is really simple. Anybody who wants to be at the table with Jesus gets to be at the table with Jesus. So, that, like, that's all you have to wonder about. That's all you have to ask. If you want to be at the table with Jesus, uh, we would love to welcome you at the table with Jesus. Uh, when you get to the table today, uh, we'll have it in the corners, and we'll have people there who are ready to serve you. And when you walk up, you don't have to take anything. You can simply hold out an open hand like this, and then somebody will piece, uh, put a, a piece of bread, which is gluten-free, dairy-free, nut-free, everything-free, in your hand, and uh, remind you the body of Christ broken for you. And then you can step to your right, and somebody will hold out a cup, and they'll remind you the blood of Christ shed for you. And you can simply just take that bread and dip it into that cup and then take and eat and find some way within your own heart to say thank you for that gift that Jesus has given us. Uh, that's our table practice that we'll turn to in a moment. Before we get there, though, uh, I simply want to look at the scriptures that are in the lectionary this week. So uh, this is a, a way of moving through the scriptures, again, that communities of Jesus all around the world share. It's a way of saying, hey, like on this Sunday, turn to this text. And we did that last week. We're going to do it again today and just see how that moves us toward the table and toward Jesus. Uh, so I just want to jump into this. This is from the book of John. And John is one of the four stories in the New Testament that tells the story of Jesus, right? And so, uh, th again, this is uh, the gospel, if you will, that communities of Jesus' followers all around the world are looking at today. Um, and we read this. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. And the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now they replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Lots going on here. Let's probe this a bit. Um, it's interesting, this text is placed in this season for the church. The reason the church turns to this moment in the scriptures is because early on in the history of the church, uh, it was understood that this season is a season especially to prepare people who are like new converts in the faith. And there was the belief in the church that this text is naming something for all of us in the here and now who are moving toward God in this season. There's something about what's happening there that's for us here and now. So I want to explore what's going on in the passage and ask what that might be for us today. So there's a couple of things going on. We've got temple, we've got animals and money, and we've got Jesus getting very, very aggressive about everything, right? Let's start with temple. 
So uh, you're in Jerusalem, and you're there on the mountain, which is called Zion. Now, there's a history behind the city and the mountain and the things that happened there. And we could go all the way back to David, which is centuries before this moment with Jesus. And if we were there in the time of David, we would see one of Israel's great moments in history. In fact, like they look back on the time of David with this fondness, like that was when we were who we wanted to be, who we were supposed to be. That was when, when God related to us in a way that we were really happy about. So David is leading the Israelite people, and he decides he's going to make Jerusalem his home and the capital city for the Israelite people, and it's going to be the place where they celebrate God's relationship with them. So what does he do? He brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Now the ark is literally a box and inside it are a couple of relics from Israel's history with God and the promise they've been given is that God's presence in in a way that maybe makes more sense to a person 3,000 years ago than it does today, the belief that the presence of God could somehow like be located on top, like would rest, would hover on top of that Ark of the Covenant. So this is a very, very important thing. Ark of the Covenant has some juice in it. You know what I'm saying? Like this is really important stuff for them. It's so important that when the Israelites would go into battle, they would take the Ark of the Covenant with them into battle because if God is with you, and God is like on the covenant, or the Ark of the Covenant, right? If God is with you as you go into battle, it's like nobody's going to mess with God, right? So we're going to win the battles that we go into if God is with us when we go into the battles, right? So they have the Ark of the Covenant, and David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, which all of a sudden invests Jerusalem and like that mountain that the city is built on with all this really intense meaning for the Israelite people. And it looks forward to when they'll build the temple And it'll be a way of thinking about their identity and their security. It'll be a way that they believe that they're going to be okay in the world and that God's with them and for them in the world. So David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and then it's his son Solomon who builds a home for the Ark, which is like a home for God and it's called the temple. Now this is a very, very big affair. And jokes aside, I seriously kind of think about what we've watched at Notre Dame with the stadium, like forget the religious implications, right? But like with this massive construction project, right, which calls for tons of skilled workers and resources, this is a serious project. Thousands and thousands of skilled workers, not just from Israel, but from surrounding nations. A a king from a fellow nation sends his skilled workers to help out. They bring limestone that they've cut out of the ground, and we're talking about massive blocks of limestone that it took people a while to understand how ancient people, without the kind of technology we have, could move blocks of limestone like that. They get cedar from Lebanon, from the forests of Lebanon that gets imported, like really good hardwoods, and then they overlay gold on top of the cedar. This is uh, an intense affair because it really matters for these people. And then finally, Solomon and the Israelites, they have their temple, and the Ark of the Covenant is within it. And there's a a theophany, which is a fancy word for saying God makes his presence known to them, shows them so that they can see and feel and like sense that God has chosen to be with them in the temple. This is a really important place for these people. Uh, In fact, um, it's so important that people who conquer Israel know they got to do something with the temple. So for example, Early in the 500s BC, uh, the Israelites are sieged in Jerusalem by the Babylonians, and then eventually the Babylonians come in and conquer Jerusalem, and King Nebuchadnezzar and his people, they drag away the elites into exile because they want to absolutely like destroy the Israelites. They want to They want to ruin these people. So what do they do? They take the elites into exile and they take over Jerusalem, but there's one even more important thing they do. Because they understand that if you want to defeat the Israelites, not just militarily or politically or geographically, if you want to defeat these people, what do you do? 
you destroy the temple. You tear it down. Like, that's how you get to their heart. That's how you get to their psyche. You go to the place where they believe God is with them and for them, and you destroy that. And now you've conquered these people. Not just politically, geographically, or militarily, but psychologically, spiritually. You've gotten to their soul when you destroy their temple. That's like 586 B.C. That's um, a little more than 500 years before Jesus. Well, eventually, another ruler comes along named Cyrus in the global order, and he allows the Israelites to return to their homeland, and they rebuild the temple. And then a few centuries later, Herod is there, and Herod says, I really want us to have a good temple, so he starts improvements. And that's the project that was going on right before and during Jesus. So this temple, like, it's got some mojo. It's got some juice. It's the place where they understand, like, this is where we know that God is with us and for us. This is where we go to make peace with God, with our sacrifices and our offerings. This is um, where we know that we're going to be okay. And in this season, they're excited that they're rebuilding and refining and making this place beautiful again. So you've got a temple. It really, really matters for these people. Uh, there's a, a Hebrew scholar at Harvard named John Levinson who describes this in a book called Sinai and Zion. Uh, he says, that, uh, that that place in the world for these people, there's a fancy term for it, which is an axis mundi, which is like the axis of the world. It's to say that like God is up there in this ancient understanding, right? God is up there somewhere. And, and we, we, we long for God down here with us somehow, right? And it's the belief that there is a place in the world where up there and down here are, are somehow connected. There's like a conduit like a pipeline between up there and down here. And for these people in their consciousness, that's the temple on that mountain in Jerusalem called Zion. This is really important stuff, right? So you've got temple. And then on top of temple, you've got some activity going on in the temple. So let's talk about that. You've got people selling animals and exchanging money. What's going on? Well, if you're a good Jew, you've got to come to the temple from time to time to make your sacrifice, which means that you bring an animal. But you don't just bring an animal, you bring a perfect, unblemished animal for your sacrifice. But here's the thing. Not all of the Jews live in Jerusalem. In fact, many, if not most, live outside Jerusalem, even far away from Jerusalem. So you're a good Jew, and maybe you're a couple hundred miles away from Jerusalem, but you've got to travel to the city, to the temple where God is, right? So that you can make your peace with God, so that you can be right with God, make your sacrifice. You've got to get there. But the thing is, you've got little, like, little baby sheep, little cute little sheep, right, that you're raising so that you can do your sacrifice. And then you're going to take those sheep with you for 100 miles or whatever on the road on the way to Jerusalem. And what's quite likely to happen? Sheep might sprain an ankle. Sheep might fall down a ravine. Sheep might get attacked by another animal and get marred or damaged somehow. And all of a sudden, you don't have a perfect animal for the sacrifice, right? And so it became much easier for the people, uh, rather than bringing their animals with them from far away to make their sacrifices, to arrive at the temple and buy a perfect, unblemished animal from one of these people selling animals in the temple courts. This is actually a good thing. If you understand that the way that you make peace with God is to bring a perfect animal to, to the altar, and these people are helping you bring a perfect animal to the altar, this is a good thing. Or at least it starts as a good thing, right? What about the, the money exchanging going on there, right? Well, uh, this is a time and place in the world where like every town, every village, every little pocket in the world would have their own currencies and the currencies would fluctuate wildly in their relationship to one another. This is like 
It's like financial markets, right? So I've got my little coins from my village that are stamped, and it's the currency of where I came from, but its value might, might be ebbing and flowing in relationship to the value of other currencies. And the temple authorities who have people coming in from all over the known world to pay their temple tax, they don't want to deal with all that fluctuation in the value of the currencies that they collect. And so they decide that we will only accept a temple tax in one currency, which is the silver drachma of a town in the Phoenician territory called Tyre. You don't need to know any of that. I don't know why I'm telling you that part of it, in case you're curious. But so, so there's one coin that they will accept. And so you, you come from your place and you bring your Bitcoin or your euros or your pounds or your dollars or your yen or whatever, right? And you've got you've to settle up with an exchanger there who will give you the Phoenician t- uh, drachma, the silver drachma that the temple tax collectors will accept. So you, you bring your currency, you exchange it for temple currency, and then you go pay your temple tax. This is a good thing because you need to pay your temple tax. You need to support the operations of the temple. It's part of living in alignment. It's part of doing the right things, the good things that a Jew does, and these people are helping you do that. Unless, unless these people are smart enough to realize that they have something powerful in their hands. So you've got, you've got a temple, a place where people go to get God, to know that they are at peace with God, to know that they are right with God. You've got something powerful in your hands, and you stand at one of the thresholds on people's approach to that temple, on their way to God, to meet him there, and you realize they've got to go through you to get to God? And you're smart enough to know you might be able to commodify that a little bit, right? You might be able to make a little change out of that. And so maybe you charge a little more for the animals than they're worth, but they've got to go through you to get the animal to get to God, and so they're going to pay whatever price you charge. Or maybe you ratchet up the exchange rates just a little bit, just a little bit of a surcharge, and pretty soon you're getting wealthy off of the fact that they've got to get their money from you so they can go through you to get to the heart of this thing where you get to God. This is... um, a pretty expected outcome from human nature when a human being finds themselves at one of the gatekeeping points between you and God. You're going you're to find a way to say, you've got to pay my fee to get to God. You've got to enrich me a little bit to get to God. You've got to play my game, play ball with my expectations to get to God. I think this is a pretty normal thing to expect. So then Jesus gets, uh, there's no other word for it, Jesus gets violent. I actually thought about buying some cheap furniture and flipping it over on the stage, but I don't want to scare anyone. Jesus gets uh, uncomfortably violent here. Like, I prefer teddy bear Jesus, best friend Jesus, cuddly Jesus, right? This is none of those things. This is Jesus fashioning a whip out of cords, like flipping furniture over and chasing people out with a whip. Something has, like, unleashed in Jesus. His blood is boiling. It's like the Spirit is raising up a resistance in the Son of God saying, no, this is not okay. Like, what's going on? What is it that elicits violent Jesus out of this whole scenario? Well, if you think about the way that Jesus has been speaking and teaching in the Gospels, he has been finding every possible way to say, God is more generous with you than you realize. He's been like finding every kind of way of telling the story and embodying this in his healings and saying, God is more generous with you than you realize. Like he tells a story of a generous father who has two sons and the one son comes and says, I wanna take what I can get right now and run away. And rather than the father saying, you gotta jump through these hoops or like fulfill my demands, the father simply says, I will give you the money and you are free to go. 
And then the younger son goes and takes the money and wastes all of it and comes to the end of himself and comes crawling back to the father, hoping he can beg his way back into the household by being a slave or a servant. And the father throws all that out, out the window and says, no, 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 you're still my son. I will give you even more. So he puts a robe around him and a ring on his finger, which says you're my son again, which says you get another inheritance. For him to be fully reinstated is to make him eligible for even more inheritance without the son jumping through any kind of hoop. All he has to do is turn and say, I want to be back in this family. And the father says, yes. And then there's an older son, a brother, who's watched this whole thing play out. And as the father's throwing a party for the younger brother, the older brother's on the outside looking in with his arms crossed and his brow furrowed. And the father comes out and says, what's wrong? And the older one says, like, well, this younger one, he squandered everything. I'm the one who's done everything right. It's like, well, if he takes all that, then there's not enough for me, and I'm the one who did everything right. I'm the one getting stuck in this equation here, right? And then the, the generous father says, you're always with me, and all I have is yours. As if to say, there's enough for you too, and I'm here to give it freely to you too. Curiously, the older son, and this is another sermon for another time, the older son, the one who's done everything right, the story actually ends with him outside the party looking in. So we could go down that road sometime. But Jesus is always telling stories of an irresponsibly generous father, of an irresponsibly generous God who says, I'm not waiting for you to jump through hoops. I'm not waiting for you to pay a fee. I'm ready to give myself to you. And I suspect that it's for this reason that when Jesus walks into a place where people are going to get God, and people are going to make peace with God, and he finds human beings who have positioned themselves on the thresholds of that approach, and who have said, you've got to pay my fee in order to get past this place to get God. You've got to pay the toll that I'm collecting on this pathway in your approach to God. The, the Spirit raises up a resistance in the Son of God who says, no, this is not okay. And so he gets a little bit violent to cast out these demons that have set themselves up to, to oppress people and hold them back and said, you've got to go through me to get to God. You've got to pay my fee. Now, we don't have temples in this sense. In the Western world, like, like we don't really do the temple thing, right? Or do we? If the temple is our approach to God, if it's our seeking God, if it's our reaching for God, if it's our desire to be at peace with God, and if the temple is a thing that's always susceptible to being colonized by gatekeepers and threshold managers who will in their own power say to us, you've got to pay my fee if you want to get past me and get to God, then I wonder what this is naming for us today in the year 2018. If the temple is saying, you might want to approach God, but you've got to pay my fee. You've got to get me to let you through. I wonder what this is naming for us today. I can't tell you like how many times I sit with a person and I discover there's like a logjam in their faith or their spirituality. There's a hang-up. There's a hook. There's a friction point that they can't get past. There's a, an anxiety that they can't overcome. And I begin to ask questions about where they've come from and what they've heard and what they've experienced. And I discover that people in their life, in their history, have set themselves up on the thresholds of their approach to God and have one way or another said, you've got to pay my fee 
You've got to make yourself right with me or meet my approval somehow on your way to God. And it's with them. And even though those people may no longer be a part of their lives, their words are, their impression is, it's still with them. Like the money changers and the animal sellers are still there in the temples of our experience with God. And it's like they have to be exercised somehow. It's like Jesus wants to chase them out. Like, like I can't tell you how many times I talk to uh, people who feel like misfits and freaks in the church or in the world. And somehow they've been told, they've been convinced, like, you're going to be on the outside looking in until you pay the fee of somebody else's approval, somebody else's uh, finally admitting you to this thing, right? I can't tell you, um, I can't tell you how many corporate guys I know who feel like they're not good at the church thing, but they know how to make a spreadsheet sing, and for that reason, they feel good about the work thing and really second class in their experience of God. And they've been told they're not spiritual enough, or they're not good enough, or they're not deep enough for this experience of God. It's like, it's like somewhere along the, the way a voice has set itself up on the threshold of their approach to God and said, you've got to pay my fee. You've got to be the kind of person I want you to be or you will be second class. You will be on the outside looking in. I can't tell you how many times I talked with, meet with, hear the story of people who identify as L or G or B or T or Q who have been told you've got to fix yourself or change yourself. You've got to fundamentally be something different than you are. And then you will pass the threshold. Then you will get the approval of the gatekeepers. And then you can finally get God. I can't tell you how many women I talk to who have been told at some point in their history, like the fact that you're a woman means you're second class in this experience of God. You have less to teach us about God. You have less authority in God's kingdom. And for that reason, like you will always be on the outside of the gatekeepers looking in on the full approach to God. I can't tell you how many times I meet somebody who um, loves the groundedness and rootedness of our faith and finds such depth and meaning in something that might look on the outside like it's not contemporary enough or modern enough. And it's the arbiters of modern religion who have come to them and say, you got to let go of all of that and modernize a little bit to be a part of this thing. And again and again, wherever people are coming from, whatever their bias or experience, left or right, I find people who have been told somewhere along the way that in your approach to God, there are gatekeepers and threshold managers, and you've got to pay their fee before you get to get God. And I, I, I resonate with Jesus who has this anger come up inside him, who has to exercise the demons and cast them out of the temple and say, you don't get to do that with God. Because God is far more generous than that. And the way I know that God is far more generous than that is because God has given himself freely in Jesus. He didn't hold anything back in Jesus. Jesus says in this moment, it's interesting, some of the interpreters of this passage, they say that what Jesus is doing is trying to restore the temple, like the actual physical temple, trying to restore it, purify it, make it be what it was supposed to be so it could continue to do the work that it's supposed to do. But the problem is with, with, with that interpretation is what Jesus says at the end of this thing. Because what does Jesus say at the end of it? He says, the temple I'm talking about now is me. And if Jesus claims temple for himself, and then we see him giving himself away to every kind of person, what does that mean? And in fact, Jesus isn't even just giving himself away. He actually says, this thing is so generous. It's so available for everyone that not only am I the temple, but I became the temple so that you could be the temple. Like this in Ephesians, a letter uh, that's written to the church. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens, I mean like with, with rights, right? With God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation and of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. 
In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I catch that, right? Like, I mean, there are a reason that the early Christians got killed, and it's because they had the guts to say such radical things as, you, without the gatekeepers and the threshold managers, you aren't just given access to the temple of God, but are in fact becoming the temple of God because Jesus has arrived to give God away. I mean, that, that, that'll turn the world upside down. That will mess some things up. And the people who have found the power at the threshold might resist that. They might even try to kill it because it disrupts their power. And it says this God is for everyone and you don't have to pay their fee. You don't have to play their game. And so I wonder today, um, as, we, as we move toward the cross and, and to Easter, um, I wonder if there are money changers and animal sellers in your approach to God. And I wonder if what Jesus wants to do is cast them out like a demon. I wonder if there are long and dark shadows that have been cast over your encounter with the divine. They're the shadows of shame. They're the shadows of being told you're not good enough, strong enough, right enough, not the right kind of person. You don't perform the right kind of way. And I wonder if Jesus, on your behalf, is actually, forgive me, quite pissed that any human being would set him or herself, that any community or culture would set themselves on the threshold between you and the God who is giving God's self away. And I wonder if uh, Jesus wants to do some house clearing today and say, it's time to be done with those voices. It's time to stop paying their fees. It's time to stop playing their games or going along with that because God has given God's self away. The followers of Jesus, they, they, they most clearly understood this after Jesus had died and been resurrected. After the Spirit of God had made it clear to them what was really going on, which is that when Jesus died, God was saying, I am so generous that I will give myself to you. And that when Jesus is resurrected, it's so that he can give us the gift of the Spirit, so he can spread this thing far and wide and give it away to every kind of person who wants to be a part of it. And today I wonder if the table would be a kind of revelation for us too, like a kind of revealing. Um, today when we come forward, you hold out your hand. And I wonder if as you do that, for some of us at least, there might be some anxiety because if you open your hand to say, God, I want to receive you, you might have been told sometime, somewhere by someone, you don't get to receive God. You haven't earned it. You haven't... Um, paid the fee that's required. Maybe it was explicit language about God. Maybe it was a, a shame structure in your family that, um, that didn't use the God language, but it still convinced you there's just something so fundamentally flawed about you that you're on the outside looking in. That you will keep failing and struggling because of that. Like, you don't get God. And so we'll open our hands today, and I wonder if as the bread uh, comes into our hands and we remember the body of Christ broken for us, I wonder if in that moment, the Spirit of Christ might cast out some money changers and some animal sellers in our temples and say, nobody gets to tell you that you don't get God.
then we'll take it and we'll dip the bread in that cup and we'll remember the great price that Jesus paid because of this uh, radical and unexpected message for the world. That the powers who had set themselves up, the gatekeepers decided, we don't like this man who is saying that God is for everyone. We don't like this, we don't, we don't like this message. We don't like this life. And so we'll come to the cup and remember that in his great love, he paid that ultimate price that we would know that God is for us and with us. And we don't need a building on a mountain in Jerusalem and we don't need an Ark of the Covenant like a wooden box and we don't need taxes paid and perfect animals brought. We just need Jesus who says, I'm here to give God to you and nothing can take that away. So, um, I'll invite those who are going to serve you to come forward here. And Dan's actually going to serve the team since I may or may not be sick. I don't know. Um, But I want to remind you that Jesus was with his friends uh, on the night that he would be dragged into a trial and then executed. And they took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And of course, the only things that can be given away are the things that are broken, right? that are broken into pieces so that there's enough for everyone. And he said, I will, I will let my own life be broken for you because God is not withholding God's self. And then he took a cup of the new covenant and he said, this is my blood shed for you because even if it takes my life, I will exercise these demons, I will cleanse these temples, I will stand up and say, no, nobody gets to charge a fee for your access to God. So let's pray, and then when I'm done praying, uh, Dan will serve the team, and then uh, you're free to come forward if you'd like. Come to the table and open your hand. Uh, Loving God, there's this thing inside us that longs for you. We long for the promise that we will be okay. We long for your power and your love. There's a thing inside us that tells us like we need you, we ache for you, we want to be right with you. And God, we confess that some of us have perhaps, in, in that tender place, we have allowed gatekeepers and threshold managers, we have allowed tax collectors and, and animal sellers to set themselves up in that tender place within us. And their voices have been speaking to us and saying we have to pay their fee, we have to earn their approval before we get you. But, but because of that tenderness, because of what is at stake there, we see the violence of Jesus, the, the resistance of Jesus, the aggressiveness of Jesus in whom the Spirit raises up a profound protest that says things are not going to be this way because you have given yourself to us in Jesus. So we thank you for this profoundly good news. And I pray that today as we come to the table, this would be for us the body and blood of Jesus, the gift of God for the world. And that as we receive this gift, you would exercise those demons. You would cast away those shadows that have been cast over over that longing in our hearts for you. And we would know that there is nothing that anybody could do to separate us from your love and that you were not waiting for us to be worthy or endorsed, but you were giving yourself to us. So we thank you, God, and we love you, and we bless you. And we trust that you will meet us in this meal. And we pray through Christ. We all said, amen.